Cody's right here, so. Oh, he topped Whoa. it. He cold topped it. Okay. Ready to go. Yeah. Oh, he shanked it. Oh, look at that line, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, boy, is he on the sink. Welcome to the Bogey Boys podcast. You're joined here by Kevin and Mark, and we've got Brian and Dave here from the Wood Bros Golf Company. Thanks for joining us, guys. Can't wait to hear all about the brand. Get so, started. Dave, take it away. Tell us about your whole golf family. Well, I grew up in a golf family. Uh, my father and grandfather and uh, other kinfolk were in the professional side of the game. So, uh, you know, I, I started in childhood. So golf in our family was kind of like a religion for a lot of people. Nice. Uh, we started playing very early and, and, you know, in a disciplined way also, you know, I mean, beginning with learning etiquette and uh, really not being large enough, you know, to really play big golf courses. I started playing golf in the Los Angeles area, Southern California, um, you know, on, on shorter courses, par threes, began playing tournament competition also in junior golf um, around that time in, in the uh, middle 1960s. And uh, at the same time, you know, our, our family being from the professional side of the game, I did everything from caddying, shagging balls, um, working in the golf shop you know, and learning, learning the craft of club repair. And, um, and my father was really a, a stickler for the detail of it, um, you know, and learning all about all the other manufacturers, the way that they produce golf clubs. And so that began my journey. So I was uh, kind of mixed, you know, uh, from, the, from the playing side and then also from the uh, workshop side uh, and in the same time attending art school uh, so I had you know several disciplines there and I was kind of divided between the playing golf and and also working you know in a, um, a workshop or you know a studio setting and uh, anyway as time went by you know I, I continued playing it was my focus you know to play and a dream to play the PGA Tour actually you know I became a very good player tournament player played a lot of major amateur competition in the 1970s uh, around the United States and at the same time you know would would uh, tinker with golf equipment to work on golf equipment in the early 1970s we my family lived in Atlanta Georgia my father had a a driving range facility with the workshop and you know I I really as teenager uh kind of turned pro on the club side of the the business and began modifying and customizing golf clubs and doing a lot of uh golf repair work and also learning to fit people you know, to, to be able to have equipment that optimized their ball flights, you know, with what game they had learned about, you know, compensation, you know, with, with golf equipment to try to, you know, have, have clubs that would be easy, easier for the player to adapt to. 
but anyway, I was a, a member at East Lake Country Club, home of Bobby Jones in Atlanta, and currently where they play the tour championship. Yeah, and as a player, I became a, I was a plus two handicap there, you know, and I was just a teenager. And, and then I apprenticed at uh, Bobby Jones Golf Course, which is a, you know, public facility in downtown Atlanta, uh, working in the golf club repair shop for uh, Jim Davey, who was a master golf professional. And I did all the work, a lot of work for the Hogan Company and also for McGregor and uh, Wilson warranty uh, work, again, as a teenager. And uh, at the same time, you know, I was pretty much playing tournament golf and, and working on my game. I came to Houston by association through my then, uh, you know, swing coach, a uh, fellow named Jim Grant who is a uh, Hall of Fame, you know, University of Houston uh, collegiate golfer and came to Houston to play for the University of Houston uh, Cougar golf team, which was one of the top, you know, um, NCAA teams at that time. Um, it didn't really go that well um, there. It was a very competitive team. Yeah. Uh, as you know, I mean, we had players like Freddie Couples and David Ishii, um, Ed Fiore, a lot of, you know, guys that would go on to playing pro golf, even Faldo and Sandy Lyle, you know, came to Houston and made it, I think, one semester before deciding to turn pro. Um, in my case, I had been out practicing, uh, you know, with the, the team at the El Dorado Country Club up in North Houston near Humble. Uh, out in the suburbs and I took a break and went with my girlfriend for a drive uh, in the afternoon and discovered this small town of Humble and thought it was so quaint you know it reminded us both a lot of the Georgia North Georgia area you know with pine trees and slightly rolling you know landscape. And I saw a golf shop, not a golf shop, but a, just a storefront, you know, in the old town for rent and a light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, well, it would be pragmatic of me to open a golf club repair shop and build it up rather than going to the qualifying school, you know, the tour school, a better use, you know, of my time and money at that time. And uh, I was very young, you know, just had just turned 21. I figured that it would take me probably three or four, maybe five years to build up the business and have something to fall back on in case I couldn't make it as a player. And, you know, soon once I opened up the Texas Golf Company in that little shop, uh, I found that actually running a business and working was just as hard as practicing golf. I didn't have time for both. And mm -hmm. so I, I really devoted, you know, just to stay in business. I, I devoted myself to working, you know, six, seven days a week and 14 hour days. Um, being so young, uh, you know, my average client at that time would have been probably late thirties in their forties you know, the corporate golfers. Um, and, 
and anyway, uh, it really it really pushed me along, you know, uh, trying to meet their demands. But at the same time, I was a player, and you know, pretty much all of I knew all of the really good players in you know the southern United States and uh, in Texas, you know, specifically. And so pretty soon I had the University of Houston golf team and Texas A&M and Lamar, uh, Houston Baptist, Louisiana players, all the collegiate players would, you know, come to the Texas Golf Company. And what at this point, Dave, what are they actually coming for? Are they just coming to get the clubs repaired and fitted? Exactly. Yeah. Customized, modified. My real specialty was uh, woods, driving the ball. Um, and also, you know, developing fairway woods with uh, better launch. Uh, my philosophy at that time, which I had really gotten through experience as well as from uh, my father, was to fit uh, golfers in transition in their golf swings, you know, with the proper shaft and weighting. In other words, you know, you had uh, players that would have a quick takeaway and, you know, uh, how do I put this? Like uh, if you had Jack Nicholas and Lanny Watkins, you know, both hitting driver, their impact speed was about the same, but how they got there was completely different. You know, Jack Nicholas loaded the club, had a pause at the top and then gradual acceleration into impact. And the impact speed would have been about the same as uh, Lanny Watkins. However, Watkins really had no transition. You know, it was one-two, uh, a backswing and a downswing really quick. And I, I found that, like, with Mr. Nicholas, you know, or that type of player, you know, he could, he could play with a shaft with a little bit more feel in it. Um, at that time, I think Nicholas was using, like, an S300 dynamic, a uh, very standard stiff shaft. So a little bit of life in the, in the tip section and, and Lanny Watkins on the other side was using Hogan apex five, a very, very stiff shaft uh, because he really had no transition, you know, at the top. Uh, but yeah, the, the building of it within uh, about, I opened in, in the uh, fall of 1977 and um, you know, by, early 1982 I was dealing in classical golf equipment uh, McGregor and Wilson and Hogan and Spalding uh, you know the 1930s to 1950s um, woods and irons and you know as you know I mean players uh, even under contract out on the PGA Tour at that time were still using driver wedge and putter that were often as old as the player himself. Yeah. 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 So McGregor, Hogan, Spalding, so were they like the biggest brands back then? What about, there was there no Callaways, TaylorMades, Cobras, things like that? Is that all new age? Oh, they were, they were coming out, you I know? See, yeah. yeah. They were, they were new. I mean, you had Cleveland classic, which was, you know, Roger Cleveland, new company, uh, Cobra, Tom Crow, you know, from Australia. Uh, who was developing golf clubs also at that time. Callaway, yeah, kind of a beginning. And even with Callaway, you know, I knew the, I knew the, uh, the principles behind that company, Dick Helmstetter and um, 
Eli Calloway anyway, uh, they were also classical golf aficionados, you know, and you, you look at Calloway, their first golf club offering that I'm aware of was the hickory stick, which was taking something like a, a Wilson R90 uh, sand iron, uh, but then installing a, a hickory shaft that had a steel shaft core in it, you know, and began promoting that you know, out on the uh, PGA senior tour at that time, or now we call the champions tour. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, everybody, there was a Renaissance going on at that time uh, with, with uh, classical uh, golf equipment. I was good friends with Gary Adams, who, you know, is the founder of TaylorMade and also my shop, the Texas golf company. I was one of the first in South Texas to uh, have an account with TaylorMade. You know, when they were just selling them out of the garage, basically, because I just thought it was really cool looking. Wow. Yeah. You know, it reminded me, you know, you know, as kids, we played marbles and, you know, we it was prized to have a steely, you know, like a ball bearing marble. And, you know, to me, having all these beautiful and very elegant classical McGregor's, um, it, it, it also was a nice contrast to have something super high tech you know like a pittsburgh persimmon in the shop at that time and also my my uh business you know i i created um a product line at the texas golf company uh that i called wood brothers and you know the the clientele at wood brothers or texas golf company they were golf club collectors and tour players, collegiate players. Um, the place was kind of like a hangout, especially yeah. on the weekends, you know, in the early 1980s, we had players like local guys, Keith Fergus, John Mahaffey, uh, Ben Crenshaw and Hal Sutton, you know, that would come in possibly on a Saturday afternoon to get work done. And at the same time, mingle with, you know, golf club collectors that were, you know, driving from all over to come also to, you know, either, you know, look at the equipment in the gallery or, or to have something, you know, customized for themselves. Texas Golf Company, you know, was, was called the Pro's Pro Shop, or we called ourselves that. We produced a catalog that we sent all over the world. We sent to UK and, you know, other areas. Japan was one of our are big places where people collected classical equipment. Okay, so you, from, from what we're getting there, then is it started as a very classical collection of clubs and then you moved into more of a manufacturer? Would that be fair to say that? It is. It is. And, you know, through that period and through my upbringing with taking apart pretty much every golf club ever made. And, they, you know, that would go from, you know, early clubs that would have been McGregor 1930s all the way up to you know, very contemporary clubs. Um, and the same with Wilson and Hogan and Spalding and Ben Sayers, you know, of, of UK. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> knowing how they did it, knowing what failed and what was successful, you know, I was able to incorporate what I thought were the best component components or ingredients into my own golf equipment. It wasn't really a, a goal to start a manufacturing company. Um, I was doing pretty good with, with retail. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of snowballed. There was yeah. this great demand 
and I, I had a, a meeting with Jackie Burke um, and Jimmy Demerit at Champions Golf Club and on invitation by Mr. Demerit and Burke to have lunch. And it was at that luncheon, I think in 19, early 1982, where I was being encouraged to really follow through and become a club maker. Uh, that was more of my destiny. Yeah. Um, Jackie Burke said that he knows that I'm a really good player, but there are a lot of good players. Yeah. And in any way, he, uh, he encouraged me to build uh, drivers. He liked my work. And uh, anyway, for me, after that meeting, I, I was very uh, focused. I became very focused on, on becoming the club maker. Yeah. Um, my wife thought that Mr. Burke was a crazy old man that, uh, <laughs> yeah, that we, you know, let, you know, a little common sense We're we're known for our retail shop and, uh, you know, manufacturing is a different thing, yeah. you know, and she was right, but uh, I was very passionate about that. It was like, you know, I have one of the apostles telling me the, the, the road I need to take. You know, I, I mean, both of these men, you know, Mr. Demerit and Burke are, you know, World Golf Hall of Fame people. So you obviously you're at that point then you're in a position where you're going to then challenge already reputable brands that are out there. So just talk us through it, how the reputation grew for, for Wood Bros. Well, one of the things that Mr. Burke told me at that day was that I could be, if I could build a perfect golf club, I could beat Mr. Titleist. I could beat Mr. Wilson or Mr. McGregor. He, he talked about these big corporations as though they were individuals, as though we were gunfighters who were going into battle against each other. And that I didn't need to worry about the pay window, he said. You know, and he said, if you shoot 68, you go to the pay window. And if you're thinking about the pay window, you shoot 75. Okay. And so very abstract, you know, I felt like I was talking with uh, Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now. You know, he is, um, you know, like Marlon Brando's part there because it was very abstract, you know. Yeah. And but but I connected with that. And uh and became devoted to it. So, yes, um, I was already making golf clubs, uh, but you know, it's almost like a sideline or a hobby. Uh, mostly, what I was doing was customizing golf clubs and becoming very successful with that too. You yeah. know, I would get golf clubs in from people like um, Greg Norman, you know, who was an up-and-coming player at that time, or, or a Crenshaw you know, these young guys and, you know, um, rebuilding their, their woods. And so I knew a lot about that level of play Yeah. and, and we could communicate. We had a, a, you know, a special language, you know, and he would tell me about ball flights and, um, I would be able to, you know, almost like a pharmacist give the prescription that I thought would be, you know, correct. This is in the day before launch monitors or TrackMan or any of that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, there was a process of tweaking 
In other words, he would work with the club or that type of player would work with the club. They have a lot of confidence, like you always do in the honeymoon period, you know, when you have something new and um, you're excited and you're making nice, aggressive swings with it. And then, you know, after a period of time, you find out that, you know, there are still limitations and we need to make more adjustments or modifications, you know, to, to make it even more improved. Yeah. And, so, you know, so that began my journey, you know, with the Wood Brothers brand. Talk us about your first ever club that Wood Brothers actually made. Was that for somebody or was that just uh, on the where you sat down and got all your knowledge together and actually made it? Yeah, the very first driver that I made with Wood Brothers or calling it the Wood Brothers was for uh, Jimmy Demerit. Oh, right. And and he really, uh, really pushed me, he told me wonderful stories about playing golf back in the 1930s. And, you know, and you're, they were transitioning from playing with hickory into steel shafts, you know, at that time. Yeah. And, and anyway, he told me the best driver he ever had was a um, oh, uh, early 1930s McGregor, very pear-shaped, uh, solid block. No sole plate, just a solid block of wood with a, um, a ram's horn slip at the leading edge. It had a wood face. So there was no lead or no, it was just pure sculpture. You know, a great, uh, uh, very symmetrical and very balanced head shape. Anyway, it, it, the club began to deteriorate. He was in the desert, you know, going to play what they called the circuit back then in the winter. It was before the tour. And um, anyway, the, dry, the club was very dried out. And he had talked to Will Syme at the McGregor factory in Ohio uh, via telegram. Uh, about his situation and Will Syme told him to go to the hardware store and buy some linseed oil and then to put it into a coffee can and uh, treat the wood you know and that that dried out wood would soak up that linseed oil that was Mr. Demerit's pushing me into making a um, an oil hardened uh, persimmon block yeah, and and how that process would go on you know i mean when he did that he put too much oil into it it got too heavy and then he had to dry it under the windshield of his uh you know studebaker <laughs> uh you know to get that the oil would plasticize after you know being in the heat and sunlight over a period of time and and so anyway he gave me a process you know that that I could follow something new to me too, even though I had worked on a lot of McGregor oil hardened woods from the 1930s, forties and fifties, it wasn't really the same thing as, you know, starting with a, you know, a kiln dried uh, block, a new one, and then, you know, curing it and going through, you know, it took six to eight months for one, one head uh, to, to harden and be ready to actually produce into a golf club. And, um, so anyway, and, and I made that club. And then with uh, Jackie Burke's challenge to me was to make something very authentic and, you know, and, and promoted it. You know, uh, I asked him about what his specifications were. And he told me 
another abstract story and it was about a member at champions golf club that could carve ducks you know like uh decoy ducks and that he could do so well that you know they were they appeared to be alive they were animated and he he asked the guy how do you how do you do this how how can you make this duck look like it's alive and he said well i grab a block of wood i carve away everything that isn't duck and that was his telling me how to make a golf club or what he wants so he kind of put me on the journey of you know creating this head shape i I would prefer that you know not to take the responsibility of making something that he's not going to like you know so i wanted to know what his specifications were you know how deep the face should be what kind of rolling bulge how much progression um, should it have a high crown and a pear shape and all of those things. And you now he kind of put me off in the wilderness there to go carve out a, a golf club. So, you know, when you're saying a block of wood, is it you just literally go into a tree and get in the wood? And, or is there a certain part of the, the wood? Like, that might sound like a stupid question, but I'm just like, it's just a block of wood. Uh, no, it's 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 a little more refined than that. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, they can't just yeah. go to the forest like... <laughs> No, we're not doing that. Uh, <laughs> you know, no, I had, I, uh, yeah, uh, there were, there were vendors back then. Oh, uh, one see, was, yeah. you know, we had a really good one in North Carolina, a Japanese company called NTB. And they did the forestry stuff, you know, where they would, uh, you know, persimmon trees, especially that variety, you know, is called Virginiana. It's a species of American persimmon. It is what brought the game from the UK to the United States was that particular species of tree. And that was the founding of the Crawford McGregor and Canby company back in the 1800s. I think it was Forgan and son was shopping for, you know, American persimmon. Anyway, it's a long story there too, you know, um, we would we we sourced our wood, and I developed master models, which are sculptures, you know, shapes of, you know, what I want to see as end product, and then they would, you know, turn those shapes for me, and then from there we would get in, you know, what would be called a, a turning, and then you know from there, uh, you know, at at the Wood Brothers facility, you know, that's where everything happened. As far, I mean, from that, for boring, you know, tapering the next, um, shaping to exact gram weight, uh, inserts, facing, you know, the building of a golf club yeah, at that yeah. point. But the raw material itself, no, is coming out of North Carolina. Oh, amazing. And then are you putting screws in? Like when you see, you say, Ed is the saying, out the screws. Like, are you actually inserting screws into that at that point when you're saying facing, or was that, that come later? It's a long process. Yes, that came much later. Um, First was the processing of the wood, you know, so NTB would turn the shapes for us and they'd be a rough turning, you know, with mill marks and they're oversized at that point. We we were trying to do everything like Mr. Demerit wanted his. He said the best driver was a perfectly solid block. And so you know, all of the failures that were coming, you know, all the decades that I worked on golf equipment, you know, you were dealing with in wood heads, a lot of cracked heads. Um, you know, they, they put holes in them, you know, to reduce the weight or they would fill them with lead, 
you know, to get the weight high enough, put a lot of stress on the wood. And, you know, a golf club moving at 100 miles an hour against a stationary object, the ball, with stress points, you know, from the screws and from the lead or any other kind of weighting, you know, there, there would be a, quite a few returns that even great companies like McGregor Golf, you know, had to endure. It was just part of doing business, you know, with that type of product. Even, you know, today, I mean, with, you know, titan beta titanium cast metal woods, you know, they're, they're almost disposable at the pro level. You know, if you crack a driver, you, you know, they're going to have another one in the trailer. Yeah. You know, um, that's going to be the same, yeah. you know. Um, but back then, you know, people were very emotional about their, their clubs. Yeah. You know, you'd see they gave them names. You know, played played the same driver for decades. Well, what would you what would you say, Dave, was the big break then for, for Wood Bros? You've created the driver uh, and you've started getting into the manufacturing world. Uh, what was the big break for Wood Bros when you when you're talking about getting the clubs onto the tours? Yeah, the really big break. I mean, it was kind of a snowball, an evolution of things. You know, I. Uh, probably big break would have been for the university of houston cougars winning the ncaa championship in 1984 and that year 84 was was really big too i was beginning to work on a lot of golf clubs and beginning to make golf clubs for some of the tour players who had just finished college yeah are playing collegiate golf you know i had credentials with them and now they were going from playing amateur events into the pro events you know and when at mr burke sent me um players like hal sutton and uh ben crenshaw uh you know with really great confidence uh, really promoting me to these guys and um you know i became their their club maker and you know and i also had you know players like um Bruce Devlin, who promoted me to um, Australian players like Greg Norman. So, mm -hmm. you know, here I had this little shop in Humble, Texas, outside of Houston, that at any given time, you could walk in there and there would be a Hall of Fame level player wow. uh, getting work done, you know. And so it just went step by step. Real really big breakthrough. Ben Crenshaw winning the Masters in 84 at Augusta with uh, a driver I built for him and all, every, well, pretty much all the clubs in his bag had my fingerprints on them, you know, for, for that event. And then, you know, I followed up and I went to the uh, U S open and at 84 open. And that was at winged foot in New York. And that was where I really, uh, I took a whole bag of uh, clubs that all had wood brothers markings on them. So I launched my product or my company at the U.S. Open <laughs> at Wingfoot in 84. Not a, um, not, a, not a bad place to do it. <laughs> no, no. And I have a family history with uh, the Wingfoot Golf Club. You know, my my great uncle was Craig Wood, who, you know, was a member and Hall of Famer from Wingfoot. And so to me, there was so much symbolism and sentimental stuff going on at that tournament but there were young unknown players um at that time 84 like mark o'mara you know who who liked my work and you know being that i was with crenshaw a lot 
that week, uh, you know, just being in his company gave me credibility with a lot of younger players. Yes. Yeah. Quality. You know, so I would say that would be the breakthrough. And then, you know, uh, the real breakthrough for the golf world was uh, January of 1980. Uh, well, no, the whole year of 1985, I had top rookie players, you know, out on the tour playing with my Texan driver. Uh, one was Bob Tway, who was who became rookie of the year that year. And then also in 1986, January, Tway came out of the box really hot and he beat Bernard Longer at San Diego, one of the first tournaments on tour that year in a playoff. And anyway, that really launched the Wood Brothers brand to the golf world, that event. And Tway went on that season to becoming player of the year. So with a Wood Brothers driver in 85, he's rookie of the year. He follows it up in 86 with being player of the year, beating mm -hmm. Greg Norman, you know, oh. for that title. You know, the year that Norman led all four majors in the yeah. final round. Yeah. It just exploded. And then from there, Bernard Longer is commissioning me to make golf clubs for him. And, and I'm working on Norman's equipment. Um, you know, it, it, any given week, you know, um, you could see someone, you know, on television playing with Wood Brothers golf clubs. So we didn't have a, a, a large advertising budget. The clubs were, you know, uh, what was drawing the attention. Yeah, and it was following yeah. Mr. Burke's uh, practice. You know, we, we had to beat Mr. Titleist. We had to beat Mr. Callaway, Mr. Hogan, Mr. Taylor, you know, and we were on the PGA Tour. Amazing. So, it, I was just to say, while, whilst you're on the PGA Tour, then you're obviously you're mixing with with the, with the best players in the world. Have you got any any success story? I know a lot of success stories, but any that stick into your mind other than the Crenshaw Masters win and and, and the Bob Tway story you just told us about, and what other professionals that you were you were working with? Oh yeah, I mean it, it, we were winning pretty much uh, that in that period almost every year someone using the Wood Brothers was going to win the PGA championship or the uh, master's tournament, you know, I mean, a major. And we are, and, and we're winning, you know, tournaments in Europe. We're winning, you know, in, in Asia and, you know, on the U.S. PGA tour as well. Lots of players, though, a lot of players. Wow. Um, you know, at that time, you know, what, what was really different about, wood brothers versus say a tailor made we the players were paying me uh, or paying wood brothers to make a golf club and whereas tailor made was paying them to use them wow. you know if you if you put it in play you know you got tee up money it was like three hundred dollars which at the time was something uh you know that would maybe help with the caddy so, but when you have players like Bernard Langer or Greg Norman, they don't care about that $300. You know, they were, they wanted the best tool in the bag to win the tournaments. You know, that's what that was all about. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it, it snowballed. So, you know, we were very dominant on the uh, Daryl survey, you know, and I subscribed to that. We would get that in you know, for pretty much every tournament. And it would show, you know, what, who was playing with what. Nice. Uh, even though they may have been contracted with, you know, 
headwear and golf bag and irons and, you know, under another OEM, um, we had a lot of drivers and fairway woods in those bags. And then, you know, other, other things that kind of, um, you know, dominoed into the, you know, wedges and uh, irons, but, you know, my resources were pretty limited, um, not a publicly funded or traded company, you know, it's all private. So, and a little bit conservative uh, on growth, you know, Yeah. but we, we became huge in the Japanese market and, and with uh, elites, you know, I was making golf clubs then for uh, members of the Reagan administration, the cabinet, uh, people like uh, George Schultz and uh, Donald Reagan, a lot of members of, uh, you know, the cabinet. And I saw even recently a club that I had built for uh, Dan Quayle, vice president under George Bush had sold an auction recently, uh, all American, we called it, but making closer prime minister Hawk of Australia and Nakasone of Japan, you know, so they were expensive golf clubs. The Japanese called it the Stradivari of golf, Um, you know, and it was, you know, it was a, product that was coming out at the time that the manufacturing side of of golf was going into more automation you know in casting woods uh, versus crafting them we seen a picture with a young well a very young phil mickelson on the uh, on the instagram Uh, the first tournament mickelson won was with a uh driver i made for him nice uh, a wood brothers texan driver and he was college yeah, in college, yeah, he won the Tucson Open. Mickelson was good friends with a tour player who was a friend of mine from San Diego. Yeah. And um, another lefty also, Ernie Gonzalez. And Ernie Ernie had won the Canadian Open you know, using a Wood Brothers Texan. And so anyway, he was talking it up with Mickelson and they were playing practice rounds and Anyway, I, yeah, I got a call from him to, to build him a couple of uh, drivers like earnings. Wow. And the payment had to come through the golf team. You know, he was still amateur. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So then, Dave, you know, you've gone there and you're, you're working with everybody who's, ever, who's anybody in golf there, like some unbelievable stories. And then, so then what sort of happened to, to Wood Brothers then in, in the coming years after that? As to not kick on and, and maybe as be as big as like what TaylorMade and, and Callaway are now? Right. Um, well, I mean, for me, it was uh, various, various personal things uh, with my family. But the pursuit of that, the opportunities were there. Definitely. Uh, I, can imagine, we, yeah, we, I can imagine. No, I, I had a, a business partner. I had done this uh, early on uh, in, in the uh, middle 1980s. Um, and it was very, I was very passionate about it. Uh, but a Japanese um, corporation called Nihon Haimo, big textile company, the chairman of the board of that company, you know, uh, I was passionate about Wood Brothers. And I, I did a contract with, with him and with Nihon Haimo for, you know, half of the business. Uh, nice. Japan was our largest uh, market you know, uh, at that time, I spent a lot of time, uh, traveling in Japan and we had an operation there in Nagoya, 
where, you know, the, the finished products were, were being done there. And we were also working and developing irons, wedges, and putters also in Japan. High quality forgings with Endo, Endo Company, uh, big, you know, great, great foundry. But in that, you know, I mean, it was kind of being in the middle of a, a, a storm at that time. Yeah, we were visited by uh, Paul Fireman of Reebok, you know, who was very interested into getting into the hard goods side of golf, like his competitor Nike was doing at that time. Yeah. And uh, Wood Brothers was a, uh, you know, a, a, he's thought as a great American brand and loved the, you know, our, our history and the artwork, you know, for logo and graphics, you know, the, everything about it. And uh, that really created a feud between me and uh, the Nihon Haimo Corporation at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they also, they were having some problems on their own. That was kind of during the time of the uh, first uh, Gulf War and their economy was uh, contracting. But anyway, uh, it's something I don't, you know, I can't explain away uh, about that. I, I sold my interest in Wood Brothers at that point when, you know, the Japanese had decided or declined any kind of involvement with uh, Reebok or any other companies uh, wanted to, you know, maintain their uh, equity. And, and I ended up um, selling my ownership, you know, at that, at that point, 1996. Okay. All right. And then what did you do then? Did you stay in the golf industry? Because I'd imagine that other brands would want to bring you on it. Like I can imagine if I was a club manufacturer and you've just sold up, it'd be. Uh, Well, when I um, sold my interest, I also did a non-compete. Ah, right. Um, and, and it was a period of a number of years, but I also, I wanted a break uh, personally uh, from that. I had uh, become a single parent with two teenage kids and, uh, right. and, and, and I got focused on my passion of the art world for that period. Now, once the, you know, a number of years clicked off there, um, I got back into the golf industry and, and went to, uh, to work uh, really running McGregor Golf. Barry Schneider, uh, a guy from Silicon Valley had bought the brand and wasn't doing so good with it. And so I joined McGregor in 2001. Okay, and what, what was that like? So, Obviously given, given the amount of years that you, you hadn't been in, into manufacturing, what was it like getting back into it? Had the, the industry moved on quite, quite a lot over those years? Oh yeah, no, it was really great. Um, actually, before I went uh, went to it, I had offers from other companies, but I was really kind of thinking passionately about it. And you know, McGregor was um, was really to me uh, a very cherished uh, brand, and uh, which I I um, was you know very emotional about. I went out to Champions and I spoke with Jackie Burke, you know, about that. Uh, McGregor was the only company he was ever uh, endorsed with or, you know, on, on their staff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he thought it was great and, and gave me some pointers. He said, watch out for the cost accountants. Um, 
and you know being typical jackie too you know it's all about building the best product yeah and uh you know so i i went that way there was some real talent there you know at at mcgregor and and really you know they they still had it in the iron business with their forgings and i i really wanted to uh pursue that but you know it's really difficult you know when when the company is owned by an investor you know who not looking at long term not looking at you know step by step you know um being new to the uh golf business there was conflict anyway because if a new product would to come out by adams golf or callaway or nike or somebody you know he, he would be looking at you know design was something that you know innovation was peripheral you know it was coming from the advertising of callaway or some other company rather than sticking with the core philosophy of what built you know mcgregor into the greatest name in in golf we've got brian here as well and talk to us a little you've been sitting patiently there brian thanks thanks for being on as well you've got you've talked about the 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 relaunch and, and what what you're doing together now in the uh 2021 yeah, of course. Uh, so, you know, my sister Colleen and I, we uh, we found out about Wood Brothers actually when uh, Longer was doing a piece about, you know, he had all of these trophies and all of his clubs that he kept that were were uh, sort of memorable for him. And I was it was around Masters time. And I don't know if you guys remember, Shambo said he was, you know, he was going to carve up the place. And basically they showed oh, the two scores. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> And um, after the, after the final four rounds, Longer and DeChambeau, I think, had the exact same score. And, you know, he's in his 60s. Uh, you know, I, I watched the piece on him because I was so impressed with, with his performance, even at this age. And um, he reached out and he pulled out this Woodbrose driver. And he said, this is, this is my Woodbrose driver that I used to win the Masters. And uh, I think Dave can correct me, but I think it was 1993. And it was the, the last person in Wood to win a major. And I said, Wood Bros. I said, you know, that, that, that name, I've heard of Titleist, Taylor Made, Ping, never heard of Wood Bros. And uh, that started uh, a fascination with the brand. Um, as you guys can tell from Dave speaking, uh, the clubs are as much quality as they are performance. Um, for me personally, too, they're, they're a work of art. And um, so that, that sort of started the conversation with Dave to saying, how can we bring in the, the brand to 2021? How can we sort of, I know it's counterintuitive, but how do we bring a pros, pro, a pros club to the masses, right? And you guys, I asked you guys, right, Kevin and Mark, you, you never heard of Woodbrooks, right? No, no. no, I'll be honest, I hadn't, no. And, and for a lot of people, especially, you know, trying, trying to, to revive a brand, revitalize a brand that would be a negative thing. But to me and to my sister, that is what is so great is that there is so little written history. A lot of it, like you're hearing with Dave is oral because it was a club designed to win on the PGA tour a club designed to perform at the highest level. Uh, so, so telling that story and, coming up with um, strategic partners in apparel, uh, in, in club, club bags, uh, club heads. Um, you'll, you'll be seeing some of that in early, early summer. 
uh, with, with some nice up and coming um, fashion brands. Uh, but as well, uh, Dave can speak to this, but eventually partnering with club makers to relaunch Woodbros and, and make the highest performing uh, clubs that are excellent, but also beautiful, right? I mean, if you, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to look at the, the Texan or the Australian club, but yeah, I mean, yeah we've had a look at them, yeah, to get lovely. That, that that is sort of missing in this day, right? The, the clubs they perform, your the sound it makes is fantastic, but I think the the artistic side is a little bit lacking, um, you know, as well as as well as the innovation. So if I had to bet on one person to come back and make a club to perform at the highest level uh, with with innovation. Uh, into the industry, it would it would be Dave Wood. And when you say you're bringing um, to make a club makers, do you mean like a manufacturer and you, and you're revitalizing the? So like say for instance, I don't know, no names, but like a a tailor made, they're going to do a Woodrose line. Ideally, down the line, as we right now, and I think Dave can agree, we we look at this as a brand building opportunity in in the first year, even maybe two years. Um, but as people begin to know the brand and become affiliated with it, we 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 have a real cult following right now, which which is great. Um, but yes, down the line, we would like to partner with with maybe even a smaller brand um, because, like like you guys just heard, Dave was a trailblazer. He was a maverick. Um, you know, we, we might want to work with a smaller uh, club manufacturer that would say we would love Dave's input to produce a Wood Brothers driver uh, with his design and his input. Wow. Well, that's that, that's exactly what I was trying to say before. I was like, surely, like, is your phone ringing every day then, Dave, for job offers or what? I've, I've had a lot of uh, calls over the years. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. I've been a little crusty or a little thorny uh, about that, you know, knowing, you know, really what, what it really takes to, uh, to launch a, a product and to be, you know, uh, something that would be at the elite level. Not, not everybody has the resources to do that. A lot of people, you know, have an idea or, yeah. or you know, some vision of it, but uh, not a long-term sustainable uh, pathway, you know, that, you know, what do you, what do you do next year? Or what's your follow-up to this? And also, you know, how well funded are you for, you know, doing that? Who is the target market? You know, it was really easy in a way for me to say that my market, this was back in the early 1980s with, uh, you know, Mr. Demerit and Burke. Uh, talking about going out and beating Mr. Titleist, you know, or, you know, one of those, one of those big corporations, because you're talking about, you know, building golf clubs for, you know, the elite 500 players in golf. I mean, as being a marketplace, you know, but not really talking about the mid handicapper at the suburban golf course, you know, that wasn't part of our market. You know, so we were building like a Ferrari uh, type of uh, golf club, you know, and it, it had to be uh, had to have all the components that would prove it to be that, you know, that, you know, it did launch the ball better. It did uh, players that use their uh, use our clubs could optimize their ball, ball flights, you know, um, 
in doing that in the modern era, um, yeah, it does take a, uh, a company with uh, significant resources. I mean, really on the business side, you got to have distribution. No, you have to have promotion. You know, all those elements have to be in place. You can have a great product that can go nowhere at this point. Uh, it could have been the, a golf club made by Moses or Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci, you know? Uh, doesn't mean it's going to be successful. You know, you have to market and promote it correctly. Your communications have to be spot on. Um, the manufacturing processes, you know, need to be really in place to be able to do that. You know, I had to learn a, a lot of my experiences in, in the years, you know, Wood Brothers. Um, you know, I came out with products that were more market friendly or consumer friendly. You know, like we had a product line called the Cool Cat, uh, in which that was kind of a compromise. It was more of a, a high tech version of our more elite, you know, pro line uh, equipment. And we had a, our negative consequences there were that the, the demand was so much greater than our ability to supply. Yeah. And that was a huge setback with uh, retail stores and golf professionals, you know, the distribution channels when they're always getting back ordered. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, we didn't have the ability to be able, because we are still working with oil hardened persimmon. Uh, a natural material uh, we're still using you know uh, hand craftsmanship you know labor whereas today I mean at working at McGregor um, you know uh, I, easily easy to adapt into that world there you know where you're developing master models you're working with castings companies over in Asia you know you go through the whole product development cycle and testing and um, you know, once you get it all nailed down, you could produce a million of them, you know, in, in that system. And they're all going to be pretty close to each other. You know, you're not going to have any uh, rejects or very, very few, yeah. you know, in that in that type of system. So, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of people over the years uh, you know, have contacted me uh, who are have ideas about becoming, uh, you know, a club maker or manufacturer or uh, have those opportunities have been there. Uh, but uh, it, it, it all really comes down to what those uh, resources are okay. that they that they have, you know, I mean, it could be, as Brian was saying, it could be good for a smaller uh, OEM that does have many of the components in place, you know, um, and if they're looking at, you know, a, a, a top line market, a more elite market, I mean, you can see it in, in wedges and putters today, um, you know, and we've seen it also in the past and not so distant past where, you know, a club company, you know, has a product that they come out with, you know, like a, a Sonar Tech, if you remember them, um, where they, they had a real high quality fairway wood. Adams Golf, you know, another one that came out with a really good fairway wood that ended up, you know, developing other products. Um, yeah. You know, you'd, you'd have putter makers like uh, Tad Moore and Scotty Cameron. They, the, both of those guys, you know, they ended up doing big contracts with either, you know, like Titleist or Dunlop. 
uh, you know, for distribution channels and, you know, wide, wide area resources. I think, I think there, there could be a fit out there for, um, you know, a, a company that wants to have an elite product line. Yeah. You know, I, I can't see being involved with anything that would be like a general motors, you know, if, it, if we we're an automaker, um, you know, because it's way too scattered and too heavy. You know, the beauty of what we had at Wood Brothers was, is that we could be, I could be a maverick. I could come out with a new design. I could go out to a tournament, you know, for example, Riviera uh, Country Club of Los Angeles, you know, visiting for the LA Open and have, you know, a prototype model that, you know, I would talk with players about and I would get feedback from. And, you know, I would look at common denominators, like 10 guys looked at the club, hit the club, and then I got feedback from them. And then from that, you know, I could incorporate the common denominators of what they talked about yeah. and have it to them by the time that the tour got to Florida a few weeks later, another version. Whereas Mr. Titleist, that could have been incorporated into the following year's product line. You know, we, would, we, we had the capability of being able to create an, a whole brand new model within weeks you know, not a year. It's very like personalized and bespoke and not just taking the idea and putting it on a production line. Yes, exactly. Very, very, uh, very much that way. Very custom, yeah. you know, it, so it didn't come down to like in the Wood Brothers, you know, became very famous for that Texas symbol. That was in our way, our, our own BMW sticker or Ferrari horse or whatever, you know, yeah. even though if you looked at 10 Texan drivers, you know, they would have similar artwork, you would be able to see very quickly that the, the head shapings and the dynamics uh, of the head are all different, very personal. You know, a driver that I would make for a, uh, a Hal Sutton would be completely different than what Bernard Longer would, would like. But, you know, if you were seeing it at distance, you would see, well, it still has all the same symbolic um, artwork on it, you know. Yeah. completely different centers of gravity and face dimensions and, you know, all of the performance things that are necessary. Yeah. So if you, in the back of your mind, if you had to pick one of the uh, manufacturers like out there today, who would you be hoping to sort of team up with in the future down the line? Yeah. Like who's impressed you the most in the modern era? Well, I mean, there's some really, there are some really great uh, producers out there today. I don't know. Any, I look at it. I like the Japanese companies. You know, I'm, I'm kind of always, you know, had a connection with uh, that country and with their manufacturing acumen. Um, so I, I like, you know, several companies in, in Japan, everything from Mizuno to, you know, uh, Mura, you know, I think uh, those, those, they, they are companies that, that produce very, very high quality. And they don't have, um, you know, shareholders that are pushing for the quarterly profit. Yeah. It's really they want to they want to win at Formula One levels, you know. And you know, I've watched Mira, and they've gone step by step over the years to where, you know, the average golfer is not familiar with that brand, uh, but elite players are very aware. Well, wasn't Tiger Woods using Mira? 
with, with a Nike stamp on it? You know, I, 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 I don't know um, mm. that much about, you know, what he had in the bag. Uh, very, very possible. You know, it's much like Greg Norman throughout his career, even though he had Cobra and, you know, uh, Spalding uh, was playing with uh, McGregor forged uh, clubs. You know, so I, I can see what you're saying with Tiger. Yeah, I just always heard that because I didn't know what Miura was. And I always I had this, uh, read this article once that he was using this Japanese make clubs, but then they were actually forging the metal. And then Nike were just putting the stamp on it because they were paying the advertising and they were paying uh, Miura. But obviously, that's just a different story, isn't it, really? But I did hear that once. <laughs> no, no, I, I follow what you're saying too. And yeah. it's 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 really true. And Nike was never a producer of golf equipment. Exactly. You know, yeah. even their golf balls were made by Bridgestone, from my yeah. understanding, you know. So you know, they were the brand though. They had distribution, they had, you know, all the marketing channels and all that other stuff. But when it came to hard goods, golf equipment, hard goods, no, that was not them. There, there are some really uh, good companies out there though uh, today. I don't know so much about what's going on in UK, um, but I, I would imagine there also that there probably are some, you know, shops that are pretty good. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of shops, especially local, that that are doing really well with that type of stuff, aren't they? We've just been to one now, um, True Fit Golf, to get ourselves fitted with a whole new tailor made uh, rig out, and some of the setups is amazing. They've got the Trackman, seven golf balls, and they've got so many different numbers about angle of attack and uh, everything, and they can they can fit a club for you there, and then change the shaft. It was just really amazing to see what 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 they can do. Oh yeah, I mean that that's. Um... That's definitely, um, you know, made uh, a lot of uh, improvements for a lot of golfers. But then there's also another school of thought that would be that the golf club should cause for the golf swing. Yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? Not, you know, that we built an, okay, you know, you're really quick out of the top. So we need to do these things to compensate for that rather than fixing your being quick from the top, you know. In the old days, players like, you know, the classical era players like a Hogan. And there were times when he may have been a little bit steep in his golf swing. Yeah. And uh, he didn't modify his irons to fix that steepness. You know, it. he needed to look at divot patterns that, uh, you know, he had to do something in his golf swing to make uh, to make that golf club work. Do you know, Dave, even you're saying that um, your club was the last one to win a major. Like, what in the club specifically? Like, you know, you get a club and it goes further. You get a club and it goes, like, straighter. What What was the Woodbrose trademark that the players loved? Well, some of it, you know, is very that personal identity. Is that know? what it was? Yeah, I thought. Might... I mean, a lot of that, you know. But the other part of it, too, is that it's like um, it was 100% pure solid block you know, of uh, Virginiana persimmon that was oil hardened to exact gram weight. So there were no interior components, no adjustable things that, you know, you could make the, the head heavier or lighter in any given area. It was very geometrically symmetrical. Yeah. And, very, you know, our, our whole motto was championship balance. You know, you wanted, I didn't want anything that 
you know, caused uh, someone to have to do something. And I, you know, it's really kind of uh, interesting the way things turned out with that. I worked with Bernard Langer for a long, long time um, with a lot of different woods over the years, you know, and you can't get uh, a more critical uh, professional to work with than, than longer, just a consummate, you know, engineering mind. And, you know, in order to stay in his bag and, and I'm because he wasn't, he didn't, we didn't have a contract. He wasn't a, he wouldn't have been loyal to our relationship if, if there was such a thing, you know, yeah. it was all about ball flight with him. And so he was constantly testing, you know, uh, golf clubs. There were times when, when his wood brothers was not in the bag, you know, it was, it was always great to see it come back, you know, that, you know, he had a honeymoon with, uh, you know, some metal wood or another product, you know, for a period of time. And then, boom, Wood Brothers back in the bag and he wins, Amazing. you know, it's, um, you know, but dealing, yeah. dealing with players uh, like, like him, you know, and other guys, it was a whole different time. You know, I, um, I could make a golf club back then uh, for a player, not a dozen of them, one, one driver or one fairway wood. And, you know, with a, a little bit of tweaking and modifying, uh, that club was in competition really quick. Yeah. Brand new golf club, you know? Um, and, and, you know, and, and I was at a time where people were loyal, you know, an old friend, a guy named Mike Donald, uh, you know, had a, a McGregor M85 Iomatic driver in his bag for 17 years. You know, it was from, you know, his days of college golf all the way through his PGA tour career um, with that golf club. Wow. You know, um, and you, you would see that with players of that time too, Jack Nicholas, you know, playing with a McGregor 945 Iomatic, uh, even though he was the owner of McGregor with brand new products, he was playing with something that was made in 1953, wow. you know, at that time, because, you know, in, in competition, the thinking was back then, then under the heat of battle, you know, when you're having a hard time breathing and you're hands are sweating and it's the back nine of the final 72 holes, you know, um, you want to be looking down at a friend. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're looking at, you've been through battles with this thing and you know, it's tendencies, you know, and you're on your own, you know, out there. So that one piece. It's, it's good that we, me and Mark have just both been fitted there and like, so we buy TaylorMade and we're going to get the new TaylorMade SIM two driver so what we're going to do as well, I've just thought we'll buy one of your Texan woods and we'll do like a little comparison just and just to hit a few and just because we've got the story, we know the history. Like we've, got to, we've got to try it now, haven't we? That'd be great. We've got to be trying that now after, after this. So you do, have, you do have a Wood Brothers Texan? No, no, I'm not saying not yet, but I'm going to. It's, it's on the list of, um, to be, it's on the shopping list. Something to acquire. I'm going to yeah. acquire one. Yeah, we're going to yeah. test it out against. I'm going to try them out against the, the, the like what we've just been fitted for, just to just to feel the the history and the and the evolution and and just just to just to hit one really because we've just had a chat with you and it just seems like the right thing to do, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 been an amazing journey, and obviously we we wish you the best of luck moving forward with with the plans that you've got going. We'll be keeping a close eye with what's with what's going on, and uh, we can't wait to try and hit one ourselves. Well, I want to report. No, you you get you'll get one. You Don't be worrying. Get a report, yeah. You know, tee it high and let it fly. That's the one. We yeah. will. We That's will. We've been, we've been in a in a state of lockdown in the UK for a good few months, and we were allowed out of the house onto the golf course from yesterday. So we're taking full advantage of getting back on the greens. Oh, it's fantastic! Got some nice weather in the UK for a change as well, which is always nice. And when you're launching the brand, and in the, in the, if you're in the UK, hit us up, and we can play play golf for for over in the states. We can hit you guys up, or, or, or we'll stay in touch anyway. And Dave, you will be getting that report. Don't be worrying. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Kevin and Mark. This has been great. We'll be sure to be promoting the Bogey Boys podcast once this is up and uh, up and live. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely take you up on that offer if you're in the States or uh, we come over to the UK. That'd be great. Lovely. Likewise, yeah. Well, let's keep in touch. And as I say, we wish you the best of luck um, on, your, on your future endeavors. And thank you very much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you, Mark. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Thanks Brian. Brian. Thanks, Brian. Take care, guys. See you later, Take guys. Care. Bye-bye now. Uh, bye-bye.